Thank you, Raquel. Throughout the last couple of months, we've been exploring the themes around seeking spiritual renewal and revival. And we've seen that it's not just a, a personal uh, desire, though it is something that goes deep within our own uh, hearts and minds and something where God calls us to be open to what God wants to do in and through our lives. Uh, maybe wants us to, uh, to turn in a different direction, to make some choices. We've also seen that spiritual renewal and revival uh, relates to God's mission and God's purposes, the desire to, uh, to see and to be engaged in the world as God is calling us. Today I want to take a significant and important element of what renewal and revival looks like, and that is the communal development. As we've seen in the readings and powerfully through the reading, uh, the responsorial psalm that we had from Psalm 137, the notion of repentance in the midst of communal failure. Now the whole question around the extent to which we identify with a community or to the extent to which we view ourselves more individually is a very uh, current issue and one that I will explore a bit further in this sermon. We, in our Western culture, have a very strong sense that our primary identity is as an individual. I am who I am. I have to be true to myself. And finding myself and all those different uh, notions is very much part of the uh, Western angst in many ways. But God doesn't view us as an individual God always views us in the context of community. As I say often, the gospel is both personal and communal, but never individual. We don't just relate to the Lord our God with our heart and soul and mind and being and leave it there. God says, and? Oh yeah, and love your neighbour as yourself. That is invariably and necessarily part of what it means to be loving God. There are times when our communal identity is a non-issue. Yes, this was actually taken after the game last night, show you when I did my sermon preparation. Um, and the headlines were, you know, all over the place. The Matildas win, and uh, wasn't it an epic game? And the joy was one in which we all entered into the scenes afterwards. Australia wins. So Australia goes into the semi-finals for the first time in the World Cup. And uh, Wednesday night, we shall probably pause our Bible study group so that we can watch a certain game. Just saying. Not only did the Matildas win, not only did Australia win, the cry went up, we won. Since this is part of who we are, hence my colour scheme this morning. I'm binational. I'm binational. So there are times in which that communal identity is absolutely, who questions it? And by donning the, the colours and you know identifying ourselves, this is something that we all contribute to. You know, I'm quite convinced that what just made that little bit of difference at that critical stage was my voice on the couch. 
And if not my voice on the couch, it was the fact that Fiona's voice was on the couch with me. Miracles of miracles. That made all the difference. You know, we all got involved and got drawn into it. So at times, we are very happy with our communal identity. But not always so. The question around we, who we are, and sense of communal identity is a very current and actually an ever-current question. But in our Western culture, we really struggle with it because our worldview is a very individualistic worldview. Questions like, do we take responsibility for the failings of others? Do we take responsibility? We say, look, I wasn't there, it wasn't me, it was others. I can tell you, as in my role as a bishop and as administrator from time to time, when I've sat down and had face-to-face meetings with survivors of abuse, or when I've, on one occasion, sat down with the mother of a young lad who didn't survive abuse, who took his own life, they didn't want me to say, look, I wasn't there. It wasn't me. I was there representing the Anglican Church, the Diocese of Adelaide. And I needed to say on behalf of that communal entity, we are truly sorry. We failed. And we commit ourselves not to allow it to happen again. There are sense in which it's not about me. And it is all about who we are as a community. And to abrogate that is a failure in itself. As I gave that apology and I said sorry on behalf of the church and listened carefully to not just what had happened but the grief and the pain that surrounded it, they needed to be heard by the church. I also needed to apologise for the failure of the church to listen and take seriously the complaints when they were first made. They ought not to have been brushed and set aside. So that sense in which we have responsibilities to own that on behalf of our identity is something bigger than us. Should we say sorry for the wrongs of previous generations? Do we say that was in former times? This is one of the big questions around the uh, relationship with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, First Nations people. The big question is, what happened back then made a big impact on where we are now? Last Sunday afternoon, a number of us heard Bishop Chris McLeod, in his very gentle way, point to a photo that will stay in my mind, I hope, forever. The only photo of Bishop Chris's grandmother and mother and her uh, Chris's auntie, her mother's sister, ever taken, or at least that we know of. Bishop Chris's grandmother, an Aboriginal girl in the Northern Territory, was placed on a station in the middle of the Northern Territory in the 1930s, and as a 14-year-old servant girl on that station became pregnant to the owner of the station. She was taken up, removed and placed in a a home up in Darwin where she had her child. 
Bishop Chris's mother. Both her grandmother and his mother were removed and placed in white Western families. Why? Because of the policy of assimilation, the policy that was directed towards half-caste Aboriginal children so that they will be assimilated and lose their Aboriginal culture and be drawn into a more European life. Do we say sorry for those wrongs as those still continue to be learned and discovered and those stories told? It took Chris's mother a long time before she could talk about it. Chris didn't know until he was 10. And even then he's still discovering more about that story. One of the reactions that really gets me angry in this present debate, which is sadly all too polarised, is when people say, oh, all sorts of people are now discovering their Aboriginal heritage as though that is something suspicious. The reason so many are discovering it is that they didn't, weren't aware that that happened to their grandparents or parents and others. And they're discovering that this was part of my story. I had no idea, they said. This is a present experience, even though the wrongdoing was previous generations. Saying sorry and hearing those stories is important. And do we, or should we, make restitution for the wrongs of our family? When... Uh, Prince William and Catherine went to the Caribbean. They were surprised on their royal tour to be confronted by people saying, you represent the British Empire. The British Empire came and took our people into slavery. The British Empire stripped our area, our, our nations of wealth. You bought homes back in Britain. Your forebears bought big palaces on the back of the wealth of being slave traders. We think we should be, have some restitution for that because you continue to benefit from that wealth. It's raised significant questions for some high-profile people and some celebrities and others who are discovering parts of their story that they weren't aware of and raises questions, should we continue to benefit from the spoils of wrongs of previous generations and saying, no, that's actually not right. These are significant questions. We cannot just say, oh, that was then, let's move on. So these questions about who we are and our responsibilities in recognising that we are, whether we like it or not, part of families, we're part of cultures, we're part of communities, raise questions for how we will hear and respond it's in that context that Daniel chapter 9 gives a powerful expression of how not just the Bible views such questions, but how God views such questions. The book of Daniel is a book written in exile. Daniel and uh, the people of uh, Israel, the people of Jerusalem, were taken in captivity to Babylon. And eventually that captivity went from the first wave of just leaders, of which Daniel and his friends were, to a later wave in which Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was torn apart, and even the sacred items that represented God's presence in the temple were taken into captivity to Babylon. 
it devastated the people of Jerusalem who were taken into captivity. And they asked themselves the questions, how has this happened? Has our God been defeated by the God of Babylon? Is the God of Babylon more powerful than our God? Has God been uh, absent-minded? Has he been not on the job? Has he been inattentive? And the prophets came back and said, no, this is exactly what God has been warning about for decades and for centuries to say, if you continue to ignore me and take our covenant relationship for granted, then judgment will come upon you. This, what has occurred, is in God's judgment. It is the consequences of what you have, your disobedience. So the book of Daniel is set in the context of a people in grief, seeking renewal and revival when they realise that this situation that they found themselves in isn't just an unhappy happening, but it's a result of their own failure. There are two great themes that are affirmed in the book of Daniel and in this prayer of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. The first great theme is on the righteousness of God. It is not because of any failure on God's part. Babylon was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was a uh, very significant city. Later on, um, Alexander the Great was to come back and to make Babylon the centre of his Hellenistic kingdom. But Babylon on the river Euphrates uh, sits with the great ziggurat and the, uh, the gardens that surrounded that ziggurat are almost like the Babylonian version of the Garden of Eden. And as they were taken into captivity and as they were told, well, you're known for singing your songs, your, your joyous songs, they said, how can we sit by the waters of Babylon and find joy when we are in captivity? And so they were struggling with learning to be in exile. And their grief, as powerfully portrayed in this painting, was one of just sadness, remorse, despair, as they gathered by the waters of Babylon and wept. But it wasn't just the tears and the grief and the sense of loss that God was looking for. Daniel's prayer picks up, first of all affirms, this is not the fault of our God. Our Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. God hasn't failed. God is faithful to his part of the covenant relationship where he said that if you obey me, then the full benefits, the fruitfulness of the promised land will be yours. But if you turn your back on me, if you turn away from me, if you walk away from me, then you'll walk into the cursing, the removal of those blessings. So notice how Daniel, who up to this stage has been saying, I, Daniel, I, Daniel, did this. I, Daniel, have put on sackcloth and ashes and have gone to prayer. But the prayer is we. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled and turned away from your commands and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name, to our kings, our leaders, our 
ancestors and all the people of his land. This isn't a royal we, you know, we, but I already read myself, I've done this. This is we as a people need to accept responsibility for the past and the present. Verse 7, it goes on. Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but this day public shame belongs to us, the men of Judah, residents of Jerusalem, all Israel. And verse 8, Lord, public shame belongs to us, our kings, our leaders, and our ancestors, because we have sinned against you. Finally, verse 11, all Israel has broken your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. We need to accept responsibility for our people, our family, our forebears and all who make up our community. But the grief, the sadness, the sorrow, if it is of truly of God, leads to repentance. And interestingly, repentance isn't one and the same as the sorrow. The sorrow, godly sorrow, should lead to a change of direction. The second passage in 2 Corinthians 7 that we used is the most personal and even the most painful of letters we have of of Paul's letters in the New Testament. Paul had been at the foundation of the church in Corinth and at a later stage, even though he had lived amongst them and he moved on, others had moved in and uh, were speaking against Paul. He changes his travel plans, all these sort of things. He's unreliable. And then Paul needed to write what he regarded as a painful letter, a letter where he says there are things that are happening in your church community that you need to stop. It was to deal with some relationships that were uh, a form of incest. And Paul says even the wider community will be horrified at that and you are allowing it to happen in your church community. So he writes a strong letter and he says, I know it's going to hurt you. I'm not planning to hurt you. And I'm sorry that it does hurt you, but it needs to be said. You need to change. This is not acceptable before God. And Paul continues his journeys around Macedonia, anxious to know how they would receive this letter. And then he hears back from Titus, who had taken the letter and now returns to Paul. Paul's hanging on Titus's report. And he says, they have heard your letter and received it as a letter of God. For godly grief, Paul says, produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Worldly grief produces death. It needs to have that change of direction to get back on track as God wants. I love uh, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the message for this verse. This is how Eugene Peterson puts it. Distress that drives us to God does that. It turns us around. It gets us back in the way of salvation. We never regret that kind of pain. But those who let distress drive them away from God are full of regrets, end up on a deathbed of regrets. Gee, isn't that a powerful phrase? The horror of a deathbed of regrets. It will choke us. True repentance Paul says, leads to action. Actions that have been directed by God. 
Paul says, I'm now happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. And what does that look like, he says? See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see that justice is done. That's what true repentance looks like. I said there were two great themes that Daniel weaves into, the foundations, if you like, for his prayer. One is that a God is a God of justice, of righteousness. He will do the right thing. And a right judge cannot look at wrongdoing and say, oh, it doesn't matter. Let's just forget about it. That is not a, what we would regard as a good process in court. A good judge names what is wrong and names the consequences, whether it's some judgment or what needs to change as a result of it. God is righteous when he looks at our lives and can't just say, look, just brush it under the carpet, it doesn't matter. God says, I see it. But because of your great mercy, alongside the righteousness of God, we have the, the mercy of God. Your character is to show mercy. That mercy comes at a cost. That mercy, as we see in the work of Jesus on the cross, came at the ultimate cost. But it is the gift of mercy that Daniel was reaching out for and grasping. So what does this look like? In our Anglican tradition, we have a prayer that's uh, not been totally lost, but it's lost its robustness called the general confession. The general confession is something that we say together in church. And some other traditions saying, why do you confess your sins together in church? Some traditions have private confessionals just between the uh, the repentant and the, the priest. And we do do pastoral repentance. We do pastoral prayers of confession. But that's not the point of why we say it together. Because it's not just about my individual sins. It's about sins that we express on behalf of our church, on behalf of our neighbourhood, on behalf of our community or our family or our nation. <coughs> The prayer of confession is one that I grew up with, a general confession in the Book of Common Prayer. It's not quite as robust in more recent versions, but I'm not sure those of you are familiar with it, but I, when I read these words last night again, I was reminding myself just how powerful they are. Notice the we language. This is picking up Daniel. This is we together, not just me personally. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have done undone those things we ought to have done. And we have done those things we ought not to have done. And there is no help in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy on us, miserable offenders. The general confession is not just about me, it's about us, about our community. It's a powerful element that we name 
and own. So true repentance leads to a passion to reconcile, to restore. And that can be hard work. The language of Makarata, it'll be the theme of the third of Bishop Tim's conversations, is the language of what do you do when two parties have been in conflict, where there is a grievance between the two, where there has been wrongdoing. And the language of Makarata is the language, the, the language of where do you go with trying to make that so there is some restoration. And it isn't just about saying, I'm sorry. One of the most confronting things in our Western culture is the process of a spear being used to injure the limb of the wrongdoer. The reason for doing it isn't just to cause pain. The reason to do it is to incapacitate the ability to repeat the offence. That's the logic behind it. How can we ensure this doesn't happen again? There needs to be an act, and it's a symbolic act to say, this must not happen again. It's actually biblical, there's notions in uh, uh, Jacob's struggles and uh, Jacob coming away with a limp and he struggled with God. Is the same principle behind it, similar notion. Makarata is, there's work to be done to name and to hear and respond in a way which then and ours moving on. I actually think it's got a significant message to bring to us in our Western culture. What does it mean to seek that restitution, that restoration, to hear that and find some ways to move forward going into the future? The voice from the heart is a voice seeking and offering. It's an invitation to Makarata. Whether it comes in the form of the referendum or not, I'll set aside. It's the broader principle of what might that look like in our culture at this time. But it isn't just about those issues. There are many areas in which we recognise the importance of putting to right historic wrongs. Every year there's a list made and announced globally about artwork, artifices that have been uh, stolen or have been um, ended up in the wrong hands, often unknowingly, some around some uh, artwork that was stolen by the, uh, in the time of the Nazis and then auctioned or sold afterwards. Even going back to the organ marbles back in the British Museum, but they've still yet to accept responsibility for. Just this year, August this year, uh, this announcement was made that Australia... Uh, through the National Gallery of Australia, is to return three looted statues to Cambodia. The story behind it was when the National Gallery purchased these um, uh, statues in good faith, didn't know that they were dealing with a, uh, a known dealer who had actually appropriated them uh, wrongly and stole them from Cambodia, removed a whole lot that Australia eventually ended up and the process of investigating and verifying that this narrative that these are actually stolen led the National Gallery to say, we need to give them back. So the statement was made by Susan Templeman. I didn't realise we did have a special envoy for the arts, but this statement, I think, is a very powerful one. This returning of the three looted statues is an opportunity to put right a historic wrong but also to strengthen our ties 
and deepen our understanding, in this case with Cambodian culture, to hear their, their grief, their pain over what had been removed from them um, after the Vietnam War, I believe. So these questions around how do we own and respond are very current, very real. The principle before us in Daniel 9 speaks to us in our own day and age. We pray in God's grace that he'll enable us to hear, to repent, to take responsibility and to encourage whether it's ourselves or our leaders or others to do the right thing and to seek to put right where there are historic wrongs. Amen.